The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today from Vancouver is analyst Graham Whitcomb. Hey, Graham. Hi, Gaurav. How's it going over there in Canada? Have you crashed the property little market? Drizzle. <laughs> oh, little drizzle. Little drizzle. You yeah. don't know drizzle until you've lived in Sydney. I, I envy. I saw someone. Um, one of my friends lives in in London. Has been trolling me with pictures of wonderful weather, and there's the first time I ever thought, "Geez, I wouldn't mind being in London at this time." It's terrible. Yeah, I thought Vancouver was a pretty rainy city, but nope. You guys are doing it better. No, we're doing it well. Um, well, look, um, speaking of doing it well, we also have making his podcast debut, our newest analyst to the team, Nick Cummings. G'day, Nick. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, Grant. Hey. Welcome, Nick. So this is it. Here you are on the podcast. The Famous. big stage. Yeah, the big stage. This is it. <laughs> Welcome. Many people wouldn't know um, about Nick. So Nick, maybe just give us a brief overview of where you came from and what you are doing here. Yeah, Absolutely. So after high school, about a decade ago, I left uh, Australia to go to the US for university and I was lucky enough to get a soccer scholarship. And the thought at the time was to pursue uh, academics but also hopefully make a career in soccer. Unfortunately, two ACLs later, that uh, didn't work out. And um, I returned to Australia with a love for investing pretty much given to me by a professor over there who was an ex-fund manager mm-hmm. and started working as an analyst for uh, Oracle Investment Management. I've been there before and joining the Intelligent Investor for six years. Now, I understand you were running an international portfolio before you um, came over to us. Is that right? Yeah, I was doing the international side for about two to three years and before that mainly um, small Australian companies. So Nick, you've done. You've looked at small caps. You've looked at international stocks. What is your interest on the ASX? Do you have a particular area you prefer to work on or prefer to look at? I consider myself a, a generalist, so pretty much everything except for biotechs and mining, which uh, I'll leave. <laughs> I'll leave to Graham and um, Gorath. But um, no, I, I like looking at everything. Uh, I really like retail concepts and consumer technology. They're probably my two favourites um, and probably a close third is industrials. Interesting. Well, we can expect lots of retail. St- oh, you know what, actually? A lot of people say retail because they think they get to go out and go shopping as part of their analyst <laughs> training. And I can assure you there's plenty of that happening. So that's, um, that's, that's good. Um, yeah, we can look forward to lots of more companies um, from Nick. We're going to talk about one a little bit later, Nick, which, um, which I thought was a great piece of work and introduced a, an interesting business into the fold. But first, Graham, let's begin with you. You've had a couple of really interesting weeks with some uh, interesting stocks BWX Very and, interesting. <laughs> I'm sure you've been engaged with them both. Um, BWX and Money Me have both had various setbacks, quite unique to them, but the result has been the same. Both stock prices have been clobbered. But I wanted to tease out the differences in what's been going on with those both those businesses because I think uh, we can make a – uh, a quite interesting point with that, but let's let's begin with BWX and just give us a quick overview of what's happened to to cause such a dramatic share price fall. Yeah, well, between the two businesses, I'd say that they both don't have something specific acting on them about the companies. BWX definitely does, but Money Me 
is more external factors that are influencing it. But hmm. BWX, I think, is is totally human error. I don't think you can blame anything else other than if you can call management case. human. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I don't want to be that mean, but um, but they've definitely made some strategic errors and some very shareholder unfriendly errors, which is what really grinds at me. I mean, companies. I'd like to think are trying their best. Managements just want things to grow and work well and to sleep well at night. But um, they, in this case here, they've they've really done shareholders a disservice that doesn't seem necessary. So I'd like to to hear more from them about what they what was actually going through their mind. But a lot of it seems to be just that they didn't have an ownership stake in the business. That they were running it for what what can preserve the business but without much regard for the little shareholders who own it. Mm. And, yeah, I think that's just a terrible way of running things, and I think it's going to come back and bite them in this case. But We see that time and time again, don't we? That the, I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on the actual real ownership in equity terms, but it's more a mindset that you treat the business as if you're an owner, and uh, you, which means you think long-term and, and every dollar allocated matters. It really is yeah. a mindset and some stocks, uh, some management um, does think that way and some doesn't. And I think you're right. He's an example of one that probably hasn't. Yeah. I don't think that just because a stock doesn't have management that has a large ownership stake, it's somehow uninvestable. CSL yeah. is a perfect example. Management a, has yeah. never had anything, mm. any real stake in the business and yet mm. they've always managed it. There's just a culture of looking after shareholders. So but this case, yeah, it just wasn't wasn't that. They've raised equity at a ridiculous price after a situation that they shouldn't have gotten in the first place. So that's, you know, two black marks. So, Graham, was the cause of all this problem the go-to acquisition or, or is, that, um, is that secondary to what's actually gone wrong here? I don't know if it was the cause. The, the acquisition last year, so for, for members who don't know about it, the company BWX acquired a 50% stake in... Uh, go to skincare last year, and then they're on the hook for the other fifty percent. Uh, I think next year by memory. But anyway, the acquisition itself, I don't have too much of a problem with. I think that it may have made some strategic sense. It was bought at a very high price. That was the only thing at the time that stood out to me as being uh, a little bit nerve wracking about it. But I, I could see how they could make the case for it. However, what we've since learned is that the company its balance sheet wasn't nearly as secure as it seemed that at the interim result in February, everything looked fine with the balance sheet. It actually looked pretty, uh, pretty healthy by most retailer standards and then uh, by most, um, yeah, product maker standards. Anyway, what happened then was management updated guidance in May. And again, everything was fine. There was no indication that the balance sheet was in any way stretched, but suddenly this past couple of weeks, management has said that net debt has, nearly tripled. So they've plowed through a ton of cash somehow in the operating company. I'm very curious at the annual result, what actually mm. used all that cash. But anyway, they now suddenly have a much, much tighter balance sheet than it seemed previously. They didn't update shareholders on it, which is another issue. But uh, then now they're raising equity to kind of fix that mess. And so what I what really disappoints me is, okay, maybe GoTo was a great business to buy. And even I mean, we don't know how well it's going to do for the next 10 years. Maybe it was even a good price to buy it at. However, if BWX couldn't afford it because 
its balance sheet was going to be an issue, then the priority should have been to fixing the balance sheet. This only happened in September, the acquisition. So, I mean, that is not long to suddenly go from, oh, yeah, we're buying this $200 million Mm -hmm. business to, oh, we need to raise equity because our balance sheet is falling apart. And in the interim, they've had a few executive changes. Um, I thought it was interesting that the, was it the CEO who walked in the middle of of that acquisition? Uh, or just, just after he, it was completed? Yeah, he left in January by memory and, and exited completely in March, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he made the acquisition and then left, which, yeah, I mean, it, it goes to show you shouldn't always give the benefit of the doubt. When he left, there was no reason given, which yeah. was really a surprise because – until then, he seemed like a pretty good CEO. He'd grown the business significantly. There was uh, he was always a good speaker, and yeah, didn't didn't have any problems with him at all. So when he just suddenly left, I was like, oh, you're kind of in the middle of this great story. What are you mm. doing? And uh, but yeah, no reasons were given. He just found other opportunities to see. But now it makes you wonder. With everything having fallen apart in the six months since, maybe he saw the writing on the wall, or there was things happening behind the scenes that we couldn't see. And yeah, he was trying to jump ship early. Mm. That the, um, very that very fast deterioration in the balance sheet that that's really scary. Nick, I'm not sure if you, if you've seen this in your time as well, but two industries that really stand out to me that are um, susceptible to this are retail with those really large uh, lease liabilities, and I would say mining services also with with lumpy uh, cash flows. Big, um, big capital expenditures as well. They they seem to um, fold on a dime very unpredictably and and often. Do you have an explanation for that? And and is there another industry? Were you surprised by the very fast deterioration in the balance sheet situation here? I don't know BWX's situation too well, but the situations you describe in retail and um, just contracting in general. Um, contracting, I mean, yep, I think that's right. Yeah. In Australia, you've seen over the last couple of months um, a few of those large construction contractors mm. Um, mm. privately go go bust and pretty much what they were doing was locking in 2019 contracts but didn't adjust for the cost of inflation of their um, building materials costs. Yep. And so, so you've got fixed revenues coming in and variable costs and that's obviously when costs rise, it's a bit of a disaster. Absolutely. And on the other side, it's um, on retail you're seeing it at the moment. A lot of these retailers, if you look at their first half financial results, they're stacking the balance sheet with inventory in the hope that they can move it because they've had previously strong demand from the pandemic. But mm-hmm. now we're entering a period of, um, I guess, consumer tightness and some of those pandemic trends are trending in the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting to see in August and the uh, US reporting season as well, uh, how well these guys hold up. Graham, um I find this really fascinating, actually, because I was also quite shocked by the the quick deterioration. Do you have any theories? I mean, I guess we'll we'll know more in August, but do you have any early theories about exactly what what happened to that balance sheet? Not really. I mean, they did just finish a factory, so we knew that net yeah. debt would go up a little bit uh, right. because they're they're making final payments on the construction costs. But uh, I mean, net debt jumped fifty million or so. So it didn't cost that much going in into the factory. So there was something else at play. I mean, maybe they were purchasing extra inventory as well for to transition to the factory. But again, that just seems like a very large number to use that amount to, to get to that figure. So I'm not sure where the rest of it really came from, unless they've had a lot of inflation in 
their costs, but management mm. didn't really allude to that in any of the calls so far. So yeah, it'd be yeah interesting I'm, I'm to see, very yeah. curious at the annual result to see what happened. Uh, so yeah. just to summarize, there's a few things here you're cranky about. You're, you're okay with the initial acquisition. Now, I've, I disagree with you there. I don't know if we will get into it now, but um, I actually w- didn't like that acquisition. I, I think um, uh, GoTo was a very successful social media brand, and it was I think it was four of the top ten products on the Mecca Store were GoTo kits. But but I think this is a very faddish industry, and I, I thought they bought a upcoming fad at the top at the peak of its popularity, and and wasn't sure that was going to be sustainable. But but we can argue about that. But then. On top of that, you're saying that they also made errors then in funding that acquisition and then in uh, in fixing up that funding with a big capital raise. That's also made you uh, cranky as well. So there's been uh, a cascading number of, of mistakes from crankiness. this business. <laughs> and, and a lot of crankiness. For those yeah, who don't know, Graham. Of crankiness. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of crankiness for you, Graham. <laughs> yeah, I would like to think that I'm not that cranky, but boy, this all these shenanigans have been driving me nuts. Uh, to top it all off, for the uh, for the actual equity raising, yeah, they're issuing one share for every four overall. But the small shareholders are limited to buying one in ten. So mm. no matter how much money you want to put into it, you mm. can't maintain your current uh, slice of the pie. You're going to yeah. be diluted by this capital raising. Except which, if you're one of the major shareholders, in which case you're. Oh well, yeah, will in go that up. case you yeah. can exactly. If you're one of the institutional mm. ones, one of the big funds or something, then yep. You're great. You get to buy the stock at a ridiculously low price and yeah. maintain your holding. But now, for that everyone is, that else, is then, yeah, yeah, it should have been a uh, a renounceable rights issue. It really, but. it really hurts when you've you've lost a lot of money and there's been a, an error in the operations of the business. But then when they try and fix that error and they do it in a way that really hurts you even more as a as a shareholder, that yeah. that grates. That's annoying. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what bothers me is. There's no clawback for management compensation. So here is mm. the CEO is getting a million bucks a year, but they've just blown up fifty million dollars of shareholder wealth by diluting the stock. Yeah, and yeah, that that doesn't come out of their pay packet. But anyway, I mean, this is actually this maybe brings us into money. Me, it shows the contrast between managements that have a large ownership stake. Which money me does around fifty percent of the stock is owned by management, whereas mm. BWX's management has, I think, one percent. So yep. they're approaching. It, it's not always the case, but you do usually find that when management has a big stake in the company, they think a little bit more from a shareholder perspective instead of just how do they maintain their jobs, how do they increase their pay. That one-sided view. And Money Me has had a precipitous fall in the share price, yet the operations of the business seem to be flying. They also made their own big acquisition with Society One. Now, how is that acquisition different to BWX's large purchase? Because that was that was a big bite for Money Me as well. I think they funded that with a cap raising too. Why does that um, not uh, gather your your anger the way BWX has? Well, I mean, the the acquisition, I don't know. I, I don't mind both of them, so I don't want to- Oh, yeah, right. Okay. No, like, I forgot. You, you don't mind the acquisition. One versus, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I, I don't see why one would be necessarily better than the other, though you could probably- I can see how uh, MoneyMe could use its kind of risk pricing mechanism and all the algorithms running behind the scenes to 
price their loans better or to get them out faster to society one borrowers. So and also bought a, in a they bought in a customer base that they didn't really have, right? I think. Uh, um, yeah, well. I, it seemed to me like they were just buying customers hmm. uh, that they'll probably over time. Uh, remove the society one branding and move mm. everyone onto Money Me, which I think makes sense as well. Um, all right, Graham. So Money Me's made this big acquisition. Um, they've funded it through a cap raise as well. Um, their business is flying. How do you account for this really big and scary fall in the share price? Yeah, it's it's interesting because Money Me has beaten my expectations on almost every. Everything we laid out in the original buy recommendation has been beaten in terms of its operations, yet the share price has come down a ton. Mm. So, yeah, that contrast is interesting. The difference between BWX and MoneyMe is that MoneyMe is facing this huge headwind of rising interest rates yep. that are going to, people are very nervous that it's going to suck the growth out of the company. There could and be raise impairments at the same time, I think. It's yeah, those, exactly. Those two things, that it, yeah. it could be squeezed. It's going to reduce the demand for loans and it's going to increase yep. the risk of people defaulting. So yep. you can understand those two sure. worries. However, it's not Money Me's uh, direct actions that are causing the mm. share price to fall. It's just the rising interest rates. And mm. so, yeah, we can't predict what they're going to do. If they go down from here, then uh, Money Me is going to be sitting very pretty. And even if they go up, we think that there's it has a compelling product offering compared to the banks and to, compared to its competitors. The, I've never actually seen any financial services company that has as positive reviews as MoneyMe, which is yeah. a lot to say for a small lender. <laughs> so the customers and I like the it. way I, I like the way they've gone into different um, different niches in that lending business, which are not, um, they're not crowded um, and they're not obvious. I thought they're really thoughtfully uh, deployed new products um, and, and really aggressive as well. The fact that they own such a big stake is is probably very ne- it's necessary in this industry because you your growth you can you can really um, decide how fast you want to grow just by by making new loans right so yeah um, you have to be very discreet in how you decide who to lend to and the fact that they own such a big equity stake that that comforts me a lot yeah me too this is definitely an industry where you can do a lot of things now to inflate the numbers and then only pay for them five years from now. That's right. So you want to make sure that management have a reason to look after mm-hmm. five years from now. And yeah, Money Me does. They've done a very good job so far. Their core, they've kind of stuck to their core offering of just speedy loans, basically, and then expanded that to different uh, areas of lending, most recently into auto loans, which has been a phenomenal success. So we'll mm. see how that does. Am I right in understanding those auto loans are actually backed by the asset as well? So they, they should be relatively safe. Uh, is that yeah. right, Trent? Yeah. Yeah, their loan book has has gone. If you looked at it a year ago, there was no asset. There was, there was no kind of collateral that was backing any of their That's loans. Right. It was all unsecured. Yeah. But now I think it's around a quarter of the loan book is all backed by cars. So, And that's the, the fastest growing segment. So that at the margin, that's actually um, improving. All the time. Yeah, it's now doing 40% of originations for Money Me are going through auto loans, which it's is just astonishing. This was a business that didn't exist yeah. a year ago, and suddenly yeah. they've just created it. Uh, yeah, that's astonishing. Yeah, very impressive. It helps. I think it helps their balance sheet that new cars have stopped depreciating, which <laughs> no one would have predicted that two years ago. 
Um, but but that probably helps them, I'm, I'm sure. But it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, Nick, are you familiar with uh, with Money Me? Do you have any thoughts on it? Not too familiar with Money Me. I must confess, I haven't been a, a big fan of the small cap lending space for a long time. I, uh, I think that's been a very good decision <laughs> for a long time. Well, <laughs> I got burnt by, um, what was it, uh, Silver Chef a few years ago. Oh, um, that was diabolical. We had a really oh, close look at that, but avoided it. Yeah. Oh, it was a shocker. And then um, the actual competitor who sort of kicked them out was Access Today, and they end up going belly up as well. So yeah. it's been... Um, that's very different. I think when, when you lend Silver Chef, for those who don't know, lent um, money to small businesses to help fund um, specifically uh, that restaurant industry to help fund um, mm-hmm. ovens and and capital equipment. And um, uh, when you think about the uh, the success rate of of small service food orientated industries, I think it's like it's probably under ten percent, and probably ninety percent failure rate. So. A lot of their loans were, I think, at risk the day they made them. <laughs> so very different to Money Me, where you've got a um, an asset there in in the car that's worth something. Um, so you, you you've loaned probably isn't at risk the same way that that it was with Silver Chef. This is quite Did an interesting. Did Silver Chef have a larger management stake? Uh, I think, yeah, it did. It wasn't quite fifty percent. I think it was probably twelve to fifteen percent, and the. CEO, oh, sorry, the chairman, he wasn't CEO, was selling down over time. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 it didn't perform well. And I agree with Gaurav that uh, it was a hard space looking back on it. Small, mm-hmm. medium re- businesses in restaurants and even commercial kitchens is just very tough. Yeah. No, that, that's but They should have been able to price the loans. Like that's a pricing issue rather than the, the businesses they were serving being mm. an issue. So... That's still it's just hard, though. Bit, I think it's just, it's yeah, just a yeah. difficult business. Yeah. Getting to the bottom of it, it was very reliant on the dealers. So uh, a customer would come in and pretty much choose the loan that the dealer would give to them, and the dealer would choose the loan uh, based on how quickly they would uh, give the customer financing. So Access mm. Today came into ah. the industry and just got in front of Silver Chef, essentially at the dealer level, by authorising loans on a much quicker basis. Mm. And that worked for a while and the growth was good and but eventually those loans come back to bite you. Yeah, you need a lot yeah. of discipline, right? I think that's where that big management stake um, really comes in. You need a lot of discipline to say no. Um, it, it's yeah, the stuff you said no to. are important. Yeah. And, and Graeme, um, the big competitor, like a big competitor that I know of is Money3, which also is quite large, listed as well, large, um, uh, large peer in the auto loans area. And they're actually doing really well as well. And that, that, that uh, comforts me a little too, the fact that um, there are people actually making money out of this and you don't need a miracle in, in order to, um, to actually make a return in this industry. Yeah, I think that, I mean, my favorite is Money3 for a few different reasons, but it does seem to have, it's taking advantage of a shift in the industry just away mm. from the, the top tier lenders towards these more nimble, uh, customer-friendly small lenders. So mm. yeah, all of them have been doing pretty well and all of them are getting much better reviews than the the banks and all of the rest of them. So it's a very big industry. There's a lot of room to grow. And that's why even if interest rates continue to rise, if demand for the loans or demand for cars is going down, then we still think that money me can do reasonably well just by continuing to take market share. It doesn't mm. have to have a growing industry to do well. So, Graham, considering where the share prices of both Money Me and BWX have landed, 
what um, what have you learned about about uh, that we can apply to a different situation? Um, for example, for for me, I think one of the big lessons is that we should um, we should hold back our worry, our panic, and the um, the tendency to act. Um, you know, just because a share price falls, it doesn't mean uh, the situation warrants any of those things. You know, for money me, I'm a shareholder. I'm probably not that worried about it. You know, that big management stake really fills me with confidence. I'd be more worried as a shareholder in BWX. Um, and I, if you know, if, when, every time they release an announcement, I just get even more worried as well. It's it's it scared me now. Is that the that's my lesson? Um, just to be more um, uh, discreet about how you allocate your panic and your worry, and. and uh, I'm interested in what, what what yours is. What have you taken away from both these situations? Yeah, I think respecting or putting a a bit of extra value on management, management's incentives, the stake that they have in the business is very important. I mean, I appreciated all those things before this, but the contrast between these two stocks does, I think, uh, just drive home that message that you want a management that has their interests aligned with shareholders. Hmm. And of course, we, we say these things all the time. Right? We know it intellectually, but there's a difference in knowing something and then, uh, you know, really knowing it. And you only really know it once you've felt the force of the error. Um, yeah. And then you, then you know it. Yeah. And I think also with these guys, it's a reminder that position sizing matters a lot. That That's a good point. Yeah. For me personally, BWX was my largest position and it was much higher than our recommended one, uh, than our recommended yeah. portfolio weighting. Well, I'm happy which, to say I, I stuck to your uh, portfolio limit on Money Me. It was only, I think, 2% of my portfolio. So thank you for that very sensible advice, the one that you didn't follow for yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but it is the, these are the moments that are a reminder that, you know, no matter how confident you are in the uh, long term for the company, no matter how fit, how accurate you feel that your analysis has been, that you still need to leave room for unexpected surprises, such mm. as management not giving you the whole story that you feel that you have, or un- unexpected external circumstances, as in Money May's case with the sudden rise in interest rates and inflation. Uh, those are reasons that no matter how how good a bargain you think you've found, you can't bet the farm on it because sometimes you're going to be wrong, and yeah. It, it means that you need to watch your position sizing, not just try to get correct the how undervalued the stock is. Nick, what about you? You've seen these two situations play play out. Um, the effects are quite similar, but the causes are quite different. What do you do? You take anything out of what's happened here? Oh, I echo some of Graham's thoughts on money. Me, in terms of just having that ownership there, it seems just completely absent with BWX. Also, going back on. BWX, it seems to me over the years, doesn't matter what management team comes in, they always want to do acquisitions. There always seems to be another acquisition to do. Mm. Whereas Money Me, for the most part, it's been mainly org- organic growth, except for society one so far. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One, you know, everyone knows that I look for hustle, um, this indefinable quality of management that just shows that they do things differently, quickly, and, um, and with a bit of spunk. And to me, uh, there's, there's, that's probably the defining difference between these two stocks is that Money Me has shown um, hustle from the very beginning. This one bloke has started this business, gone, you know, found these really interesting niches, built a lot of these niches from nothing. He's got this, this fantastic technology behind him, a unique delivery platform, 
like everything they do is just filled with hustle. And then you come across the BWX. I'm sorry, Graham, um, but <laughs> there's just uh, there's not a lot of lot of hustle there. It's uh, I know I they're trying. They've done less things more slowly. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly right. You, you want you, you wish you'd they'd done less. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting that, yeah, I keep coming coming back to that concept. Um, you know, it's nebulous and, and hard to explain, but you definitely recognize it when you see it. Now, another stock with Hustle, Nick, and um, no one can deny this. I think um, there might be people who disagree about Money Me's Hustle and there are other stocks that are contentious, but Dicker Data is, is one that I really enjoyed your review of that. I, th- I think you presented that really well to the team. It's a stock that we haven't paid a lot of attention to and it's a stock that I've missed for years personally just because it looks on the outside like a terrible business it should be by all accounts a terrible business and yet and yet um is it hustle that explains the difference here Nick explain to us exactly how a mover of boxes that makes tiny margins takes on a huge amount of debt huge working capital requirements is able to pay huge dividends and has had, uh, what, a, a seven, eight times increase in its share price over the last few years with with profit growth to match. Like, what is the secret here? What is going on? Well, I think you said it. It's Hustle. It's it's David Dicker, the, the founder, um, and his wife or ex-wife, Fiona Brown. They own 70% of the business. And it's a brilliant business in a poor industry is how I describe it. As you said, they move boxes. But they describe it as moving boxes with a service. So when they set out four decades ago, they didn't really have an idea of what they were going to do when they eventually settled on IT distribution. They got <laughs> HP. Wait a second, I've got to stop you there. So these guys, I find that the origin stories for businesses are actually, um, I think they say a lot. This is a terrible origin story, Nick. You're telling me that these two people had no idea what they wanted to do. They just stumbled across an idea and thought they'd give it a try. That's not very inspiring. I should say they they knew they wanted to get into computers, but they didn't know <laughs> in what aspect. I mean, originally, originally he was um, worked in his dad's, I think, roofing business. Um, he has no university degree, wow. and then became a coder and was a better coder than most engineers. Wow! Um, and then they tried to build a computer, but that didn't work, and eventually got a contract, I think, with HP or Cisco for Australia, and became an ID. It just says so much about, um, you know, we all have this idea about what success looks like, about the kind of person we want to back. And David Dicker breaks every single rule of that idea. I, I think that tells you how how important those rules really are. Like we all have them in our heads and, and we should all be willing to break them um, from time to time. I think that was my error with this one. This sounds fascinating. Sorry to interrupt. Continue. Yeah, no, just, just on some of those um I guess breaking the rules. I mean, his quote on the board is, I only want people I trust on the board and that mm. have got industry experience. So there's almost no independent directors. Mm. Uh, he pays staff or he pays his three top executives based on a percentage of profit with no wow. caps. So so they're heavily incentivized to grow grow profit more so than any other management team on the ASX probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that, that alone, those two things you've highlighted there, they break about every governance rule in the book, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And at their uh, latest AGM, they got a second strike and a, a spill <laughs> motion that was eventually voted down. And I mean, well, well thanks- they own 70% of the stock, you just said. So huh. I can't yeah. imagine that didn't go yeah. far. And I guess, I mean, shareholders have nothing to complain about. I mean, it listed mm. in 2011 at 20 cents. 
and I think it's around $12 share price at the moment. And this year they're predicted to pay $0.52 cents in dividends. Wow. So it's just incredible, absolutely incredible. And they pay out 100% of um, uh, net profit typically. Yeah. And I, I still don't understand. I, I, I think I've, I mean, I've, I've heard you speak about it. I've read your review, obviously, so I, I get it. But I need to hear from you again, Nick. So tell me how exactly they're doing this. So here's um, – the margins are very low um, and they pay out all their cash flow as dividends. How do they compete so successfully? Is it just that they've um, incentivized their staff really well? Is, is, is that the secret? What is the secret? That's one of the secrets. The other secret is focus. So they're mainly competing against Synax and Ingram Micro, who are in 150 countries, really big and really bureaucratic. Mm. These guys are owners and they focus particularly on small and medium businesses where they have around 50% market share in Australia. So they've been able to go to these smaller, you know, sometimes mum and dad customers, resellers, and just win their business, business over the years. And they can just charge a slightly higher margin for that. So around right. eight to 9% gross margins compared to Cinex and Ingram Micro who charge around five to 6% because wow. they're mainly five selling- 6% gross margin. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So okay. it's, it's crazy low. Um, and they're mainly selling, uh, so the big competitors are mainly selling to Harvey Norman, JP High, JB Hi-Fi who have uh-huh. a lot of bargaining power. Whereas- yeah, Dickada is mainly focusing on small and medium businesses. The other big secret too is, I mean, it's not that Synex and Igra Micro have been terrible investments in themselves. I think Synex has tripled over the last um, decade despite poor management. Hmm. It's just the IT industry has grown at 6% compounded for two decades and that flows through to these distributors as well. Hmm. Graham, did you, um, I bet you were, you know, when you're sitting down thinking about the great businesses to buy, did a, a business with, uh, with two competitors generating 6% gross margins, was that on your list? <laughs> it's not one of the filters I use on uh, our, <laughs> our selection process. <laughs> wow. Okay. So um, it does have a great story. Yeah, it does, right? And anyone who's heard um, David Dicker speak is just uh, one of the most eccentric and unique CEOs this side of Key's Wheel, I'd say. Uh, which, which yeah, might, uh, it's, which it seems like it's all working now, but it'll be interesting to know what the company does after he eventually leaves. That all those governance things, I can see how you might want to forgive them now because everything's going so well. But what happens if you get a CEO in there that's with the same structure that isn't as charismatic or I don't know, forward thinking. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, you know, as a kid, I always used to watch, um, Baba. Do you know that, that French elephant? Oh, yeah, I used to watch that. And, um, <laughs> I remember coming back to it as, you know, watching it and putting it on for my own children and watching it thinking, this is horrific. He is a absolute monarch with absolute control an authoritarian <laughs> state with completely illiberal policies where he, this elephant lives in a trunk. <laughs> he lives in a palace while he's, um, everyone else lives in the dirt. And, um, and it struck me that, that, uh, uh, you it know, resembles he, the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, any, any structure can be made to look, uh, workable if there's benevolence at the very top, but that doesn't make the structure a good one. It mm, just means it point, depends yeah. on the individual. 
And and here is probably the same thing, you know. There you go, Nick. Um, I bet you never thought you could put Baba and Dikadara in the mm. same sentence. But but here's the here's the same thought, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say it's not my era. <laughs> <laughs> but it is Baba is great, by the way. If anyone who hasn't seen it, it's uh, it's it's quite it's quite good for little kids. But um, but it strikes me at the same point here that that the structure might not work all the time and for everyone, but for the right people, it probably is. Um, the right way to go. It, it it maximizes flexibility and um, and you can get things done very quick. Absolutely. And it, uh, even though there is that sort of corporate governance, um, you know, dictatorship almost to a degree in the business, um, he's taken care of his employees over the last two, three decades. They're, yep. they're typically the best paid in the industry yep. um, and they're well incentivized to, to grow the business. Hmm. So, I, I do agree with Graham though. It's a there's massive key person risk with with this business. Um, though he did say he will die um, in his chair. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe that. But I understand he's actually a bit more hands off these days. So it's not just a one person risk. It's the operation, the people around him. Actually, the top, top those top executives, they're the ones who are actually driving this business. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. He's still the CEO. So how management explain it is essentially. Um, David and his ex-wife Fiona set the overall strategic direction, mm. and then his CEO, C, um, sorry, his chief operating officer Vlad um, sets the daily operations or, or takes care of the daily operations, and then he's got um, uh, a CFO Mary that does all the finances, and she's worked there for two for two decades. So there is. A little bit of, uh, I guess, there's two levels of management, mm. and and, D- and David doesn't even live in Australia. He spends half his year in Dubai and half in New Zealand playing with cars. So, <laughs> so he's very hands off. He he refers to Australia as um, a bureaucratic mess, even though he's. I don't think he called it a bureaucratic mess, did he? He said something a lot stronger than that. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot stronger than that. But um, it, it strikes me as funny since he's, you know, almost become a, a billionaire um, from <laughs> from extracting profits from the country. But, uh, but anyway. And what happens from here? I mean, you've got this very successful business now. I understand they're moving away from uh, moving boxes and towards distributing software. Now, that was something that we talked a lot about um, internally Tell us why that will be a good thing. I would have thought that um, there's less scope for differentiation if you're distributing software and can they hang on to those juicy 9% margins if they're um, gross margins, mind you, if, if they're just distributing software. Is, is that a threat or is that an opportunity? It's a bit of both. So obviously software being distributed through – so the old model with software was perpetual license software, which still needs some distribution. Um but the new model is just distributing it via the cloud. So, you know, software as a service, um, those sorts of things. It, it's a risk, but it's also an opportunity. So the risk is that you don't need warehouses, you don't need distribution, but you still need sales. So, for example, Microsoft uh, have a bunch of cloud solution providers or partners around the globe instead of a direct sales force. So they rely on these guys to go out and sell their software essentially. Uh, and now Microsoft software can be a bad example because it somewhat sells itself. But think about a, a mid-tier player. They don't need to put, employ a direct sales force in every country. They can use these um, distributors and resellers um, around the globe to do it for them. Hmm. The threat okay. is 
once you're on a subscription, does that relationship with your reseller deteriorating? You just go straight to the source over mm. time, mm. Um, and that and that's and that's going to be the I guess uh, is the threat we highlighted in the article and the, the threat um, sort of the research um, highlighted as well. But how that pans out is probably going to be a big determinant on how this stock performs over the next five five years. Yeah. And what about um, expansion plans as well? So often we see businesses um, dominate a niche or do well in a geography, but then fail to replicate that overseas or when they expand. Yeah, 100%. This is another key question because, uh, as we alluded to, they have 50% market share in Australia in that small business. Did you say 50%? In small, medium business. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's quite high. So if you break down Australia, the Australian market, the overall market, they've got about 22%. Just corporate and small, medium business, it's about mm. a third. And small, medium business, it's 50%. So their expansion, um, they just recently bought uh, a company called Exceed in New Zealand where mm. they had 20% market share. So their market share in New Zealand, combining Dicker's market share, will be taken to 28%. Uh, and, and the main reason for the acquisition was actually to secure a key vendor, HP, who have... Uh, just a massive market share in the New Zealand corporate and, and government space. So they'll be able to sell HP products now to the rest of their reseller base. So that's the only expansion they've um, hinted at in terms of geographical. The other expansion they're doing is they bought Hills Security um, and IT business, which is actually listed. It's It's been a terrible company over the years. They've had is, a, that, is that Hills Industries? Is that the yes, Hills yeah. Hoist, Hills? Oh, um, I'm not sure they have a healthcare business and a security business. So I don't think it's Hills Hoist, um, but it's Stockhurst HIL. Um, okay. It, it's, yeah, it's a very small business, been mismanaged over the years, and their security oh, division has, okay. it, has been terrible. And so that raised sort of a red flag to me is like, oh, why have you bought this terrible business? But there mm. was. there was a lot of, um, I guess, strategic rationale um, to do so. And the main reason was they had a 2,000 resellers um, in that Hills business that will now come to Dikadar and there's very little crossover. And they believe that the security infrastructure, so um, cameras, um, monitors and all those things, will eventually morph with IT distribution and you'll need a whole security solution mm. and that they'll be able to cross-sell uh, IT products into that base. And they only paid $20 million for it. Mm. You know? So it's um, it's sort of a... I think it's a heads I win, tails I don't lose much sort of play. Yeah, fantastic. Graeme, what do you think about this? Have you come across Dicker before and has it? Um, what were your initial thoughts when you came to this business? Yeah, it hasn't been too much on my radar, but yeah, after Nick's review it does sound a bit more interesting. The Yeah, I mean there's, there's the key man risk, which I think is a bit of a um, – a downside for me and then it's hmm. i guess more complex than i mean i just don't know the industry very well so can't really you'd like it more if that. they had um natural it products i suppose <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but where's the shareholder dilution that's what i want to know <laughs> yeah. yeah i had a friend uh well i have a friend i should say who um who is he only buys stocks that uh that are terribly managed. He has some psych- psychological problem. He can't buy stuff that's good. He just thinks it's good. Everyone knows it. He wants, he, I think he wants investing to be harder than it ought to be. So he always buys these crappy businesses with terrible management. He's actually done a reasonably good job, so a reasonably good track record. But 
I've never seen anyone make investing so hard. And I feel as though um, sometimes um, that can be a trap to fall into, that we we think too hard about this. When something is just working and um, and easy, we, we sometimes ignore that. Uh, and yeah. I think that's There's the no way. There's no points for, what is it? There's no points did, for uh, complexity or something. There's no, I think there's no bonus points for difficulty, right? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's, a, that's something long, along those lines. Which we should know Buffer quotes better than that, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we mangled that one. Um, yeah, look, this is a, a fascinating um, business. I must admit, Nick, after your presentation and article, I added this. I've got a watch list of stocks that um, I now only, when, when I buy stuff, well, when I, when I think to allocate capital in my own portfolio, I've got a list of companies, probably about 30 businesses on there. I'll only go to those 30 businesses. I think I've been doing this long enough now where I know which companies I want to buy and which which, which I don't. Um, and I only will probably buy in those 30 companies, although there's exceptions. Uh, Whitehaven Coal was not on that list <laughs> before I bought it. So there are exceptions, but but I've actually added Dicker Data onto that list because I think it's it's that interesting and it's been um, such an uh, unlikely success story. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, I mean, we, we talked in the article about valuation. We, yes, that's we the wanted, other thing we should talk about, yeah. Yeah, we, we wanted it a bit lower. And, and the main reason there was there has been, because of its success, there has been a massive run-up in its yeah. earnings multiple. It used to trade on 10 times earnings in mm-hmm. you know, 2015 and it sort of almost got to 30 times earnings. Before wow, its is that right? Up. 30 times? Yeah. yeah. For a, a very low-margin, highly competitive is, is this probably not cyclical? Okay, so it's not that, but but that's a that's a big multiple for this kind of business. Yeah, I mean, even though there's not as much cyclicality, cyclicality, there is still some. I mean, IT budgets definitely do get cut in yep. um, recessionary you know, scenarios. Right. Um, but yeah, it's dropped back to twenty times earnings at the moment, which is still double what you pay for Synex. Oh, is the, that right? In right. The US. Okay. Yeah. 20 times. Okay. So what, what would you, what are you thinking about the, the price here? I mean, we're expecting, um, is, is it double digit growth you're expecting or probably less than that? Double digit sounds, very low double digits is about what growth I would expect over the okay. next five years. And that's really made up with sort of two observations. IT industry growth is typically five to 6%. And mm. even though there has been a pull forward from the pandemic, it mm. doesn't seem to be slowing down. Um, every business is now a digital business. I know that's a bit of a bit of a cliche, but it's kind of true. Um, and there's still a bit of catch up going on there. And then the other side of it is just if they take that one to 2% market share, which they've historically done, you can get to a double digit growth in terms of the top line. Uh, the market... The market's probably not as concerned about the top line, I would say. Um, they're more concerned about are they over-earning? Are margins going to come down? Uh, management said that margins should stay around that 9% gross, but it's the you know key arguing point between the investors. So, Graham, how do you feel about owning a low-margin, heavily indebted, key-man risk-infused business um, that's under threat from, from, from software but has a... Reasonably good uh, track record. You enthused? Is this the sort of thing you'd, you'd risk your capital on? I'm sure it'd make a difference to my portfolio. I'm just not sure which direction it'll. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it'll I work. think that's right. <laughs> yeah. No, look, it as I said, a too I, hard basket for me, but an interesting story. Interesting. So you haven't added it to your watch list. You wouldn't. You wouldn't buy this one. Not yet, 
But mm. I mean, the more I learn about it, the more interesting it becomes. So that's, yeah, ask me in six months. Yeah. Okay. We might well do that. We'll come back to, to it. Um, Graeme, thanks for, for joining us today. And you did a, a lot of work on uh, over the last few weeks. So um, thanks for your, for your time again. And Nick, um, wonderful to have you on board. Thanks for the discussion. And we'll hear more from you in the future. For everyone else, thank you for listening.